All right, welcome. Matt Slick here, and you're listening to Apologetics Live. It is uh, straight up 6 o'clock. And um, I was just talking to Charlie, a friend of mine. He's uh, in the uh, participation room with me. For some reason, I don't know how it slipped my mind, but it did. We never got, or I don't know how to get the uh, the actual room URL to the guy I'm supposed to be debating tonight. So uh, all I can do is hope that he shows up, and um, I'll get into the room link, and then we can, you know, get an email address, and I can email it to him, and he can get in. It's just an oversight on my part. Should have taken care of that earlier. But as you guys know, I've got a lot going on, a lot going on, and. Um, been difficult uh, trying to keep track of everything. So uh, let's see how many people are in the room right now, and I don't see anybody. So hopefully we'll be able to get we'll get him going. There we go. Let me turn this down. Okay. Oh man, 25 people are watching. So if you're one of the guys, if uh, the Catholic guy is uh, listening, um, email me. We should have taken care of this. I just any rate, just email me at uh, info at carm.org, and I'll give you the uh, the address so you can get in and check it out. Actually, maybe I could just put it up on the whole site because, uh, Charlie, you could just uh, mute everybody so that nobody can – you can do that, right? Uh, you can do that. You can just mute everybody, and uh, I think I'll do that. Yeah, if I have the controls, yeah. You have the controls, don't you? Not that I'm aware of. Well, let's see. Uh, okay, and share controls with Charlie. So you got them now. Let me just go ahead and put the uh, the, the participation link up on the Apologetics Live portion. And um, what we'll do, okay, okay, participate. There's that URL. To watch, I don't know how they're already getting to it, but people are. And uh, come on, there you go. Come on, there we go. And uh, we'll just have to figure it out because if he wants to come in, then he can do it that way. So let's go here and let's go there, and we'll just save it. We got it. So there you go. All you got to do is uh, you just click on the participation link. Like if anybody does come in. Uh, Charlie just automatically silenced them so they don't have any ability to uh, interrupt. And in the meantime, what we'll do is we'll, I'll just kind of fill the air. And um, so if he doesn't show up, what I'll do is I'll read some Trent material on baptism. And then I'll go through the biblical position uh, on baptism. And I'll, I'll teach on it why baptism is not necessary for salvation. You should get baptized, but it is not necessary uh, water baptism is not necessary for salvation. I'll go through some various verses and and things like that and uh, discuss some of the issues. If he doesn't show up, I'm sure those things will probably be brought up anyway. Um, so we got uh, we got one. What's his name? In good, amen. So he's in there, and John uh, Wilkinson. So we'll just see. Um, hopefully, he'll come around. Now this is supposed to be streamed out there in um, G3 a little bit. Uh, I'll probably on a table, on a laptop. People can watch if you're watching. Hello. We don't know how many people are on the table. Um, not out there at G3. Why? Well, the main reason is my wife's health. Um, she's pretty bad off right now. And uh, a lot of problems, a lot of issues. And so I need to kind of be the caretaker a little bit and uh, be around while she kind of heals up. 
and stuff. So next year, though, I definitely want to make it out there. I wish I could be a speaker out there. That'd be nice. Actually, be a speaker. But uh, we'll see what happens. All right. So I think what I'm going to do is update this uh, the apologetics live thing and put the participate in red and the watch in red so that people can be drawn drives will be drawn to it hopefully and they can check it out and click on the link and there i guess he's in and uh is that you traditional catholic yeah hold on let me get this thing straight it's um okay hold on for a sec all right so i'm going to take it off the uh, site and the watch is there because you already you only don't want more people to come in Okay. Oh, I think we lost. He lost. Oh, man. Let's see if he can get back in. I have to put the link back up. <laughs> I took it down. I don't want people to come on in, and he found it, but uh, now he's out. So I may have to put it back in again. Oh, there it is. He's back in. Okay, don't have to put it up. Great. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. <sighs> Okay, is everyone able to hear me? Am I coming in loud and clear? Yes, you are. Okay, great. Oh, good. All righty. Okay, well, I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad we uh, we're going to have this debate. I've been looking forward to it all week. Good. I got a question for you before we start. Yeah, so go what's, ahead. What's your real name? James. Well, that's James. my middle name. But What's your I really don't like giving, giving out my name over the internet. I don't trust the internet. I'm one of those that. Whoa, whoa, um, whoa, 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 whoa. So it's okay for you then to hide behind an, uh, anonymity? Will I risk uh, my full reputation and everything here? If you, you, well, you lose, a, no one knows your name, right? No one knows. Well, my yeah, but my name doesn't prove. Okay, fine. My name's James Robinson. Good. Thank you. Okay. That was easy. All right. But it doesn't so now you, make any difference. It doesn't really it make doesn't any make difference. difference to me. Name, yeah, but it, it doesn't really make any it doesn't really make any difference what my name or your name is because it has nothing to do with the debate. Well, I want to know who I'm debating and, and that's just uh, that's where that is. So are you ready to start? I'm I'm ready. Okay. And so the debate topic is what you agreed to. Does the Bible teach that water baptism is necessary for salvation? And uh, no. well, we did agree. We did agree that I could cite early church fathers as well. Well, uh, you can do whatever you want with your time. It's your time. But the debate topic is: Does the Bible teach that water baptism is necessary for salvation? So, if you want to quote, you know, a recipe book, you can do what you want in your time. But that's the topic. Okay. So. Uh, I think it was, and I'm pretty fair about whatever. I mean, if you go over time, I don't care. So uh, we're, we're talking about six minutes, seven minutes, I thought it was, right? Five, what was it? I don't remember. Well, he did say unlimited. You, did, you, didn't, you said last week, you know, you didn't care. It could be unlimited. So I don't know if it's going to go over six or not. I think most of my statements will probably be around maybe three or four, but maybe That's it might fine. go over six. Maybe one or two might go over six. I don't know. I think well, maybe my opening statement is a little longer than the rest. Well, okay. I hope you, you know, you're going to do an opening statement. Uh, I hope it's not more than two hours and uh, that I can respond to it. And then we can just go back and forth, I guess. We'll just work it out and try to be as polite as possible. All right. Sounds great. Okay. Go for it. You're up.
<clears throat> okay, I'm glad Matt has agreed on having an uninterrupted debate format since we've clashed numerous times in the past by talking over each other. I believe this type of exchange and discussion will be more edifying to the listeners and viewers. I just want everyone to know that I'm just a lay Catholic. I have no degrees. There are Catholic apologists out there that I'm sure would do a far better job at debating Mass Lake than myself, such as Trent Horn of Catholic Answers, Brother Diamond of VaticanCatholic.com, or Jerry Matadix of JerryMatadix.org. But nonetheless, I'll give it a go. To begin, my belief in the necessity of water baptism is based on the traditional, infallible, dogmatic teachings of the Holy Catholic Church, which Jesus established 2,000 years ago, as well as the New Testament scriptures which most Protestants admit was originally compiled and decreed by the Holy Catholic Church as being the inspired Word of God in 395 AD. Sadly, even though most all Protestants agree that the Holy Catholic Church was the church that originally determined the canon of New Testament books, those same Protestants refused to accept the Catholic Church's own understanding of what those books revealed to us. So, Protestants apparently accept the Catholic Church's authority on one hand, while refusing to accept the Catholic Church's authority on the other, which is an oxymoron. The Catholic Church has always taught the necessity of water baptism for salvation. In fact, Protestants after the Reformation 500 years ago also believed in the necessity of water baptism for the forgiveness of one's sins. Even most Protestant churches today still hold to that belief. Yet, a new type of Protestant belief has arisen within recent times, whereby they no longer believe as the Christian church has always believed with regards to baptism. Instead, they reject the necessity of baptism for salvation. They ignore the fact that for the most of the Christian church's history, it was unanimously believed that forgiveness of sins, sanctification, regeneration, initial justification, and true saving faith itself was conferred by God at the moment a believer was water baptized. Even with all the biblical and patristic evidence, the small number of Protestants will falsely claim that baptism is just a symbol or testimony to a person having already been saved by their belief alone. Protestants do something called, quote, one-verse theology, unquote, which means they'll take one verse— or one chapter, such as Romans 10, informed their theology around it, while ignoring its context in relation with the rest of Scripture. They'll cite verses whereby it says we're saved by faith or saved by believing, such as Acts 16.31, which says, quote, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, unquote. But notice, however, this verse does not say only believe and you'll be saved. Yet those Protestants that cite this verse and other verses like it want you to think that's what it's saying. In fact, many of them <coughs> many of them will cite this verse, but deceptively refuse to cite the verse shortly following it, which says, quote, within that same hour, he was baptized. For Protestants to falsely claim water baptism is only symbolic, then they are denying the fact that Scripture itself makes clear that God reconciles us to himself by forgiving us of our sins through the waters of baptism, which he himself instituted under his new covenant, as we see in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. The baptism Jesus received, as we see in Luke 3, 21 through 22, is a foreshadowing of the new baptism he would give us. 
Notice the Father and Son and Holy Spirit all being present at Jesus' baptism. And then notice all three persons of the Holy Triune God being invoked in the New Covenant baptism. We Catholics agree that there is symbolism in baptism, but nowhere does Scripture claim baptism is only symbolic. Instead, Scripture makes clear that baptism signifies what actually occurs at the moment one gets baptized, which is the washing away of one's sins, thereby being seen righteous before God and thereby having a good conscience afterwards, knowing that one's own sins have been forgiven. This is why 1 Peter 3.21 says, quote, Baptism now saves you, unquote. Not one place in Scripture does it say that a person is saved prior to being baptized by believing alone. Instead, Scripture explicitly says baptism saves in 1 Peter 3.21. This is because Scripture itself tells us that baptism under the new covenant is directly tied to Jesus' saving grace through his sacrifice on the cross. Instead of taking a verse out of context, as Protestants do, in order to justify their false doctrine of, of um, faith alone, we Catholics, on the other hand, correctly read verses in context with the rest of Scripture. By doing it this way, it becomes crystal clear that three requirements must be in place in order to receive Jesus' forgiving grace. Those three requirements are belief and repentance and baptism. The small number of Protestants that reject baptism will make the unbiblical claim that only belief and repentance are necessary. However, lately I've discovered a new crop of Protestants that don't even believe repentance of one's own sins is necessary. Instead, they'll say belief alone is sufficient. Notice how they just keep getting further and further away from the truth of God. Matt Slick is one of those Protestants that rejects the necessity of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So, Again, he and I have agreed to an uninterrupted debate format whereby I make my case with regards to the necessity of water baptism for salvation, and he makes his case against it. And that concludes my opening statement. There, I had to unmute myself. So that was that was six minutes on the not on the dot, man. Pretty good. I'll see if I can do six minutes. Okay. All right. So hold on, let me get my notes, and I'll reset my timer here a little bit and try and follow it. There we go. Let's do let's do that. Ready? All right. Well, uh, first of all, thanks. I hope everybody watching is going to enjoy this. Uh, I, I enjoy debating uh, the biblical theology. And um, so I, I took notes from what he was saying and um, got so many windows open. Hold on a sec. I got to get to them so I can go down through what he was. He said, and uh, why is it that way? Okay. Wow. Okay. So <clears throat> he quoted Acts 16, 31, and it was really interesting to see what he did. He did not establish that water baptism is necessary for salvation. If something's necessary for salvation, it means that it cannot be an exception to it. It's necessary that my brain function in order for me to be physically alive. Uh, there's no exceptions to that. I have functioning brain. Brain death is, is death. So when something is necessary, there cannot be an exception to it. So what he would be saying is the necessity of water baptism means that without it, you cannot be saved. It's necessary. And furthermore, he would teach that the, that the Bible teaches that necessity, and it doesn't teach that necessity. Nothing he uh, showed us taught any necessity of it. 
And we'll go through some of the verses. Uh, in Acts 16, 31, um, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved you in your household. And then he quoted later where they got baptized. Uh, and they were all baptized in the next verse, in verse 32. Okay, uh, I like those those sets of scriptures in Acts 16.30. Uh, let's read the whole thing. And after he brought them up, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So the text right there says that believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What's the answer to the question? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The answer to the question is, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with him uh, in the house. And he took that very uh, night, the hour, and, and washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized. He and all his household. That's verse 33. So they were baptized later um, after they were saved, which is consistent. I can hear you. You want to mute your mic because um, I can hear you breathing and making noises. Um. And so to be, you know, to show something else that's consistent with that, we go to Acts 10:44 uh, through 48. Now, while Peter was speaking with these, speaking the words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, "Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did." Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. So they were baptized. Now, where, where were they? Uh, where did they receive the Holy Spirit? You go to Acts chapter two when Pentecost occurred. They, they received the Holy Spirit. Now, what he had said was that you don't find any instances where people are saved before baptism. Yes, you do. Acts ten forty four through forty eight. People are there with the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them, and they were speaking in tongues. They were glorifying God, and speaking in tongues is a gift, a charismatic gift to the Christian church. They were exalting God. Now we know from First Corinthians two fourteen and Romans three ten eleven and twelve that the unbeliever cannot understand or receive the things of God, and he does not do anything that is good, and that includes praising God and exalting God. This is done by the power of the Holy Spirit within them. So they've already received the Holy Spirit, just as Peter said he already had received the Holy Spirit, and then they got baptized. So what um, James here would have to be saying is that these people here who were who had received the Holy Spirit just as uh, Peter and were speaking in tongues and glorifying God were still unsaved, were still weren't saved, were not forgiven because they hadn't gotten uh, dunked in water, and that is a problem for him. He went to 1 Peter uh, 3, uh, 21, and twice quoted only a small section in order to get it to, I guess, I don't know, um, uh, to support his, his view. He said, baptism now saves you. And you want to know something? That's what the verse says. Baptism now saves you. Now, there's a, a, an important concept here in, in uh, dealing with scriptures. We need to read the context of things, just like I did in, in uh, Acts 16, 30 and 31. Uh, let's do that with First Peter 3, 20 and 21. Starting at verse 20, uh, those who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water safely through the water. That means the water was the means of, the, of destruction and death to people. And Peter confirms that later on, but nevertheless. Uh, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a, clean, a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Corresponding to what? The Greek word there is antitupon. It's, a, it's responding, uh, corresponding to something that came before it, the antecedent of that baptism. Now, here's a question. What it, does baptism correspond to? Well, baptism saves you. What saved? What saved Noah? Was it the water or was it the ark? Well, it was the ark. Now, there is some debate. 
among scholars about what the antecedent is of uh, of can, can, you know, baptism. According to that, that is, uh, is it water? And some say uh, the ark. I hold of the position that it's the ark because that's what saved Noah. So that's why I believe Peter says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt. He goes, not this issue of the water on you, having dirt removed from you, but an appeal. And this is what he's doing. The word baptism is used in different contexts, in different ways throughout the the uh, New Testament. And um, so we can see that uh, it's not always just simply talking about water baptism. There are other instances of it and other things, baptism of the Holy Spirit and things like that. But that's another topic. So the verses he has quoted don't prove his point. Remember, his point is to prove that water baptism is necessary for salvation. He's not done that. And that is six minutes. Go ahead. All right. Hopefully you guys will get back in. And then when enough people get back in, I'll, I'll explain what happened. And um, try it again. All right. So for those of you, who, I'll just say what happened. I accidentally just stopped the broadcast. I was done with my thing. I was looking at my clock on my phone and wasn't even thinking. And just saw the stop. I was going to reset my thing. I just clicked stop with this hand holding this hand. And uh, I was, you know, click, but I had my hand on it and just hit stop. And so the reason, I hate to admit it, but it's true. The reason the first vid went bad, and we still have it recorded, of course, uh, is because I just hit the wrong button. That's what happened. And so it's my fault. And uh, I apologized, tried to get it restarted, and uh, I had to redo the whole room. I couldn't just uh, continue with the new room the old room so i apologize everybody so he's going to come back in and we'll just continue where we are well i just have part one part two that's all, all how we'll do it so um again for those who just came back in the fault was mine i hit the wrong button and hit the stop broadcast when i was intending to hit the stop on my stopwatch on my phone i had my hand here this hand i was done click just automatic and that's what i did and so that's that's it hopefully he'll be back in and uh, oh, I couldn't believe I did that. Dang it. What I'm going to do is move that away to a different screen so I don't do it again. You can just blame your old age. Oh, man. <laughs> it just, it was just, it just was automatic for me. It was, uh, you know, it's just, um, it was, oh, okay, I'm going to stop the timer. And I saw the word stop up there. And so I just clicked stop. As soon as I clicked it, I went, oh, what did I do? So I messed up. So uh, we've got uh, 18 people in. Come on, get back in, folks. We're up to 28, and then we yeah, Just so you know, Matt, in the new room, I don't have controls. Okay, thanks. Um, give you, yeah, I'm embarrassed about that. Control freak. Yeah. Okay, there you go. All right. Yeah, I'm going to put it up there. What happened? Um, but I, I blew it, and hopefully he'll get back in. Okay. Okay. So note, Matt Slick, inadvertent. I don't know how to say it. Inadvertently. Inadvertently. Accidentally. <laughs> accidentally. Yeah. Accidentally. Yeah, I didn't intend to. Accidentally uh, closed the wrong window. Um. Half 
trying to stop the uh, stopwatch. And clicked the stop on the uh, debate window. My apologies. The new room is here below. Darn it. Mm. All right. Don't now, be you know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's stupid. But uh, uh, what I'm afraid that they're going to be doing is, uh, is going to, you know, they'll say, oh, Matt couldn't handle it and he had to cut him off. You know, it just, uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> I couldn't believe I did it. You guys heard me. Like, what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> just, okay, come on back. Come on back. Oh, good. He's back. Hey. Oh, okay. James, I apologize. I do apologize. Um, it was a oh, no problem. No problem. Uh, it just... Oh, can't believe I did that. But I did it. So I moved the window up real high to a third monitor. So it's not where I'm looking now. All right? Okay. So I, I, what we'll do is uh, we'll keep the first part. I'll, I'll change it to part one, and we'll have part two, and, and uh, maybe make a note next to it that I accidentally closed the window out. I, I just beat myself up about it still. Sorry about that. No, not intentional. Just I just screwed up. No, I understand. That's fine. Okay. okay sorry about that. Uh, I guess it's my turn now. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you brought up Acts 1631 again, and you're doing exactly what I said uh, that Protestants do, you're adding to Scripture that which is not in Scripture. And the Bible actually says not to add or take away from Scripture. And Martin Luther is guilty of this. He actually added the word alone uh, after faith so that it would say faith alone because that, you know, he wanted the Bible to conform to his theology, whereby the Bible doesn't say that. The only place where it says faith alone is in uh, James 2.24, and it actually says the opposite of what Martin Luther believed said a man is justified by his works and not by faith alone. But we're not having a justification debate tonight, so we won't get into that. And uh, you said that they were saved in uh, Acts 10, 44 through 48. Nowhere does it say they were saved. And 1 Peter 3, 21, unless you're a Pentecostal, you know, that's what Pentecostals, they claim, you know, because they say, well, they received the gifts, they're saved. But I don't think you're a Pentecostal. But 1 Peter 3, 21 um, uh, yeah, I agree with you that it, it is. It's not just identifying with Noah's, uh, Noah's Ark. Uh, it's also identifying with the actual event of the flood also, and it's identifying with uh, Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. But I'll get into that in a bit. Uh, but, you know, in fact, you know, uh, we noticed that in the past you've compared baptism to that of, I'm surprised you didn't do it again, of a ritual or ceremony in what appears on the surface to be, I don't know, I guess an attempt to make it appear as though it's a work we do. Um, and then, you know, you then go to places in scripture which speak against salvation through works, such as um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 or Romans 4, 4 through 5. However, what you refuse to acknowledge is the fact that the Christian church has never taught that baptism is a work we do, but instead the church has always understood baptism to be a work God does to us, whereby he infuses us with the grace of a saving faith. 
This is why, out of all the sacraments, baptism is the only sacrament which has always been historically been called the, quote, the sacrament of the faith, unquote, ever since apostolic times. Think about it for a moment. What work is the one being baptized doing? The answer is that he or she is not doing anything at all. Instead, something is being done to them. Now, if you say, well, the one baptizing them is doing the work, hey, I don't disagree with that. But to be consistent, if you're going to claim that because someone else is doing a work on behalf of another, therefore, because of that, the person that did no work received no saving grace, then one could use the same argument against missionaries to whom bring the gospel message to others. You yourself, you bring the message through your quorum website and radio program. So does that somehow mean that those to whom came to believe in Christ through hearing you somehow now have an illegitimate faith simply because you did a work by making that message known to them? Plus, I'm sure you would refuse to take credit for bringing the faith to your listeners, but instead you'll say it's the Lord working through you. So you give all the credit to and glory to God. Therefore, if the Lord works through persons to bring the faith, then obviously he can work through persons to bring the waters of baptism as well. Now, some persons may ask, but what of those cases whereby it's impossible for a person to get baptized before they die? Well, to answer that, I would have to ask the questioner if it's impossible for God to bring the faith to his elect. If the answer is no, then why assume that it's impossible for God to bring the waters of baptism to his elect before their physical deaths? In fact, we see the Lord miraculously doing just that in Scripture by sending angels to intervene so as to bring the waters of baptism both in Acts 8 and Acts 10. This is because both faith and baptism are intrinsically connected in Jesus' great commission, which we see in Matthew 28, 19-20. And Scripture makes clear that one does not come into the faith until one is baptized, as we see in Galatians 3.27. So therefore, believing alone, even if it's a devout, heartfelt belief, does not mean one has acquired the faith. This is because the faith is not an intellectual ascent of the mind or emotional state of the heart. Instead, Scripture makes clear that faith is a gift from God. And Galatians 3.27 makes clear that this gift is bestowed upon a believer only at the moment that believer gets baptized. As for Matt's attempt at disregarding the importance of baptism by claiming it's a ceremony, well, in many instances, a grand ceremony is put is put forth whereby one gets baptized, but it's not always the case. As an example, imagine an elderly man on his deathbed in a hospital, hospital whereby he has only minutes or even seconds left to live. Now, he already believes in Jesus and is repentant of his sins, but has not yet been baptized, which means based on Scripture, he only has two of the three necessary requirements. So he lacks the third requirement needed in order to be saved, which is baptism. Therefore, by God's grace, someone in that room is moved by God to quietly baptize him without anyone else seeing it happen. Where was the grand ceremony in that? There was none. And yet that was a valid baptism, which God recognizes as such. We see all throughout scripture that God works through persons. So in this example, God worked through the one doing the baptizing. But the elderly man on his deathbed did nothing, just as babies do nothing when they're baptized. Therefore, the one being baptized is never doing any work. 
So each time Matt Slick attempts to claim throughout this debate that baptism is a work we do, then remember that the Bible never says it's a work we do, nor has the Christian church ever considered it to be a work of ourselves. Instead, it has always been considered as a work God does to us. Martin Luther said as much in his own defense of baptism. He said, quote, yes, our works indeed avail nothing for salvation. Baptism, however, is not our work, but God's work, unquote. We Catholics agree with Luther that baptism is not a work. Baptism is both a gift and a mercy from God, which saves. Jesus says, Jesus saves us through baptism, which scripture directly links to his saving blood. Also, each time Maslick tries to make the unbiblical claim in this debate that baptism is only an outward sign and nothing more, then remember that the Bible never says it's only a sign. Instead, the Bible makes it clear that baptism signifies what God is doing to us by removing our sins and purifying us at that very moment when we receive baptism, which I will reveal throughout this debate by bringing up those passages from Holy Scripture, which both implicitly and explicitly makes that case. And that concludes my statement. unmute myself each time um that's about five minutes um well let's see go through my notes uh you brought up james 224 if you want to debate uh, justification sometime by faith alone in christ alone i will be willing to but you need to study the context of james 2 it's justification before people not before god and so you misapplied it you took it out of context you said acts 10 44 does not say they were saved right it doesn't say they were saved but it does say that they were speaking in tongues and glorifying god and i did say in response to that issue that um, to speak in tongues is a gift given by the Holy Spirit to the Christians to the church to the people those who are who are, are saved that's how it works uh, they were exalting God and I quoted first um, Corinthians 2 14 and Romans 3 10 11 and 12 both those verses teach the unbeliever cannot receive the things of God or foolishness to him uh, and uh, that they can do no good. And exalting God is obviously a good thing. So the idea of them exalting God is speaking in tongues means they're a member of the body of Christ. They have that spiritual charismatic gift and uh, they are exalting God, which the Bible says unbelievers can't do. And furthermore, uh, Peter said he had, they had already received the Holy Spirit just as Peter had. And so when did he receive it? At Pentecost. Uh, was Peter saved then? Of course he was. Were the people there saved? Of course they were. And so then baptism um, uh, was there as a demonstration of what it was, uh, the effect that it happened upon them. First Peter 3.21, you said that uh, the baptism identifies with the water and with the re resurrection of Christ. Um, well, uh, we can go through the resurrection of Christ issue another time. But uh, as I've said before, there is debate. What's the antecedent referring to corresponding to that baptism now saves you? Me, uh, along with uh, Spiritus of Hyatis, uh, he says, and I agree, that uh, it's referring back to the ark. So it's an issue of entering the ark by faith. And this immersion of uh, faith, this immersion and trust into the ark who is Christ and the one door that they enter into, uh, it represents who he is and what he's done, that God closes the door and opens the door and Jesus is the door. It's a typological representation of um, 
that faith in Christ. That's why Peter says not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal. And he talks about that, equating that issue of faith as an appeal to God, and he relates it to baptism. Um, yeah, baptism is a ceremony. Um, I don't think you've heard me say it's necessarily a work. I may have said it at that time. I may have. I don't recall. But the issue that I do say is that it's a uh, it's a ceremony. I say you teach that baptism is um, as uh, not a work. And I say, well, you're teaching that salvation is by faith and repentance, which is keeping the law and uh, going through a, a particular ceremony. And it's in that ceremony that uh, salvation occurs. And we'll get to the deathbed thing. Uh, a ceremony is a formal religious or public occasion, typically one celebrating a particular event or anniversary. That's what exactly what baptism is. It's a uh, religious and public occasion. Um, now, uh, you brought up the idea. I don't. I don't know why you're doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. But you said uh, the church has always taught that baptism saves and infuses grace into us. Uh, furthermore, uh, I mean, no, it hasn't. I got plenty of quotes to the contrary. But this debate isn't about that. The debate is about what the Word of God says. You should be focusing on Scripture. Not what Martin Luther says, not what John Calvin says, not what Zingli says, not what your your uh, church says. The issue is, does the Bible say each time you venture away from Scripture, you're outside of the topic? This is what we specifically agreed to debate. And so uh, you're not not uh, debating the issue. You're debating something else. And as far as Galatians 3.27 goes, you don't understand the historical context. If you read 20. Uh, <clears throat> 24, it says the laws become our tutor to lead us to Christ. In that culture, a young boy in some households was given to a, a senior slave in that house, the doulas in that house, and the doulas would be the teacher, the trainer, the tutor. And he was a very trusted position. And so once the, the child, uh, the son of the, 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 uh, the house owner, once that son had grown and matured, then he was given a toga. He was given a garment to wear, designating the maturity that he had achieved. That's why he says, uh, but faith has come. That we are no longer under a tutor for your all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice it doesn't say faith in baptism or faith in repentance. It says through faith, for you all were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. This is the cultural context about being clothed, having that mature aspect. And he talks about faith as the means by which it's done. This deathbed thing as an illustration of your, your doctrine. Um, it's really interesting. A man is on his deathbed, minutes to live. Uh, he believes in Jesus, uh, etc. but he's not been baptized. And then you said, and so someone in the room is moved by God to baptize him, and that's how. I, okay, so you just made up a scenario and say, see, what you're implying is in every single case like that, someone's going to baptize him because God's going to say, you're going to say that God's going to say that baptism is absolutely necessary. And so your logic is that God, what he'll do is he will make sure he's baptized. This is called begging the question. You've not established that in Scripture as the case. You've not established that baptism is necessary for salvation because if it's necessary for salvation, then your statement would be, uh, would be logical. But since you've not demonstrated from Scripture that it's necessary, then this statement that you made about the deathbed is really irrelevant and unproven. It's a, it's a problem. I would suggest that when you get back on, that you don't have to quote Luther or Zwingli or Calvin or your church or anybody. It's the issue is what does the Scripture say? You have to demonstrate, as a debate title is, uh, is water baptism necessary for salvation? Show me in the Scripture where it's necessary. I've answered First Peter 3.21, Acts 22.16, and um, uh, we've gone to Acts 10.44-48. So if you've got other verses you want to bring up to try and demonstrate that baptism is necessary, then please do. Now, one last thing. 
when I quoted Acts 10, 44 through 48, and I showed you the evidence of their salvation, you said, it doesn't say they were saved. You said, it doesn't say those words, they were saved. Well, I can use the same thing with you and say, none of those verses you quoted say baptism's necessary for salvation. You have to logically infer that it is. As I did with my case, that it's not necessary in Acts 10, 44 through 48, you've got to do the same and demonstrate logically from the scriptures that baptism is necessary for salvation. If you don't demonstrate its necessity, then you failed in your uh, obligation in this debate. All right, your turn. Go ahead. Okay, well, okay, Matt Slick just said that uh, I didn't show that any place says that baptism saves, but 1 Peter 3.21 explicitly says baptism saves. And also, he, originally he said that um, uh, Acts 10.44-48 through says that uh, he said it's it's he pointed to that with regards to them being saved, but he just admitted that the wording in the Bible does not say that they're saved. So, you know, Maslick has in the past, and since he brought that up about Acts 1044, we'll discuss that. He's in the past correctly distinguished between an essentia type of faith, which is when one simply believes in God's existence, and a fiducia type of faith, whereby one has a heartfelt trust and devotion to God. He has said numerous times in the past that at the point when one comes to have this devout heartfelt belief in God, then that person is saved. Yet, there's not one single place in Scripture whereby it explicitly says having only that type of fiducia belief saves you. Now, some Protestants to whom deny the necessity of water baptism, like Matt Slick, uh, they'll, they'll go ahead and they'll say they'll point to Acts 10.44 through 47 or 48, as Matt just did, as proof that Cornelius and those gathered with him were already saved because of their belief. And they'll say because of this, they, were, they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit before being water baptized. The Protestant claim is false. Firstly, notice in Acts 10, 1 through 2, it says Cornelius and his family were already devout believers in God. In fact, St. Peter makes clear in Acts 10, 36 through 37, that Cornelius and those gathered with him already knew about Jesus and the good news of the gospel. So this refutes the idea that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was bestowed upon them after St. Peter began speaking to them. Because if this was the if the, if this was the case, then that indwelling should have occurred much earlier when they first came to believe. So what does it mean in verse forty five when it says, quote, "The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them unquote and second, why was this gift given to them? I'll answer the first question and then I, and then Matt can respond after Matt responds, then I'll give an answer to the second question. To answer the first question, we see the answer in the very next verse, which is verse 48. And it says, quote, for they heard them speaking in tongues, unquote. Speaking in tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a charism, which is also referred to metaphorically as, quote, baptism of the Holy Spirit, unquote. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the new covenant water baptism that Jesus instituted in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Instead, it's a metaphoric use of the word baptism, just as being baptized by fire is metaphoric and refers to the disciples' trial, suffering, and being martyred in the name of Christ. The reason St. Peter said, quote, they received the Holy Spirit the same way we have, unquote, is because he saw that they were speaking in tongues. We see in Acts 2 that St. Peter, along with others, had also received these gifts of the Holy Spirit because they too were speaking in tongues. So St. Peter was only referring to the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit when he said those words. 
We don't see Peter claiming that Cornelius received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We do, however, see water-baptized believers being said to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, such as in 1 Corinthians 6.19. And we know these believers were previously baptized based on what 1 Corinthians 6.11 says. Also, another example of baptized believers having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is found in Romans 8.9. We know it's referring to those whom have been baptized because St. Paul says in Romans 8.1-2, one through two, that they're, quote, in Christ. And St. Paul makes it known to us in Galatians 3.27 that a believer is not yet, quote, in Christ, unquote, until that believer is baptized. Plus, at no time do we see Peter claiming that Cornelius and those gathered with him were saved prior to being baptized. Some Protestants will claim that even if all that is true, the fact that Cornelius and those gathered with him were speaking in tongues is evidence that they were in the church and therefore saved. Well, if Maslick believes the same as those Protestants do, then he needs to give us at least one passage from Scripture which explicitly says that all those to whom speak in tongues have been brought into the church and are saved. I can tell you already he won't be able to post that verse from uh, the Bible because it doesn't exist. Yet in this debate, I will show you that the Bible explicitly links the washing of baptism to being sanctified, justified, and saved. Now, in regards to the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, when one reads 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, it clearly implies that it's possible for a person to not be in God's grace and yet still exhibit the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. For example, the Jewish high priest Caiaphas is said to have prophesied in John eleven forty nine through 52, and yet he was not saved. Plus, if Matt claims that by Cornelius and the others with with him having demonstrated a gift of the Holy Spirit is therefore a sign that they were already in the church and saved, then he's falling into the same heretical trap many of today's charismatic renewal so-called false churches make, such as those in Pentecostalism, which is that one must demonstrate these charismatic gifts in order to be recognized as a, being a true Christian. So if Matt claims that by Cornelius demonstrating these gifts of the Holy Spirit as evidence he, is, he was a true Christian, then just the same, it would mean not demonstrating these charismatic gifts is a sign that a person is not a true Christian. So to all those listening to this debate, I have a question for you. Have you ever spoken in tongues? If not, then based on what some Protestants claim, you yourselves must question if you are truly saved or not. Hopefully, Matt Slick won't side with the false charismatic Pentecostal movements by claiming Acts 10 to 44 through 47 is evidence that Cornelius and the others were saved simply because they received the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which was them speaking in tongues because if that's the case then will matt claim next that one must do snake handling as well but seriously though there are charismatic false protestant churches that do snake handling to prove that they're true christians anyway that concludes my statement all right um no i did not say uh that uh there's no place in Scripture that says baptism saves. Uh, I didn't say that. I said there's no place in Scripture that says uh, baptism is necessary for salvation. And the reason I brought that up is because um, you uh, wanted me to have a particular wording out of Acts 10:44 through 48 that says that they were saved. And I simply brought up, well, there's no place in Scripture that says um, baptism is necessary for salvation. So you didn't represent me properly. And um, fiduciary faith, you said there's no place in Scripture that says fiduciary faith saves you. Um, you can go to Romans 10, excuse me, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, but particularly verse 5. Um, to the one who does not work but believes 
his faith is credited as righteousness. And that's uh, that's a trusting faith. And we can get into the, exegeting that another time. Um, you uh, misrepresented the argument out of Acts 10.44 through uh, 48. You quoted um, about Cornelius, uh, that he was already a believer. Great. Well, what it says there in Acts 10 is, um, <clears throat> is that uh, all the circumcised believers... Uh, all the circumcised, hold on a sec, I just messed up my, I want to read it to you. Okay, come on. Sorry about that. It says, uh, all the circumcised believers uh, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Notice what it says in verse 44 also. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All these circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on all or on the Gentiles also. It's not just Cornelius. So you misrepresented the whole context there. What it's saying in Acts 10, 44 through 48 is that uh, the Jews, the Gentiles, all the people that were there, it'd be interesting to find out, do a study to see a, an estimate of how many might have been there. I don't know. Uh, but they were exalting God and they're speaking in tongues. And notice that I, I said both speaking in tongues and exalting God. And you only address the speaking in tongues thing, but you're exalting God out of and for the third time. First Corinthians two fourteen: the natural man cannot receive the things of God for their foolishness to him. And um, Romans ten, uh, Romans three ten eleven and twelve says that the unbeliever, the natural man, or excuse me, the uh, cannot he does not does no good. Uh, he doesn't. He can't glorify God. He has no good work. Doesn't seek for God. Things like that. He's not capable of exalting God. This is something that is enabled by the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling a person, and the Holy Spirit in the indwelling sense occurs with believers, not with unbelievers. So what you would have is a. And I don't mean to be mocking, but I'm going to say something. Kind of a zombie kind of a theology here. I'm not trying to be insulting, but you kind of have someone who's half dead, half alive in the Acts 10:44 through 48 context, and that he's he's just uh, you know he's not alive, and that he's not been saved. Saved, but he's not dead because he's got the Holy Spirit living in him, just like Peter did at the Pente at Pentecost, speaking in tongues and exalting God and praising God. Uh, and they then get baptized because they had already received the Holy Spirit, just as the Apostle Peter had, and yet they're not saved. So you kind of have this, they're not really unbelievers, but they're, they're believers, but they're not saved, even though the Bible says, having therefore been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, uh, that they're not justified by faith when they believe. You have justified by faith when they go through baptism, which is problematic, another issue with justification. And so you didn't represent the whole argument that I presented there about Acts 10.44-48. Let's see my notes. So he would have us to believe that those who are exalting God, trusting in Christ, speaking in, in tongues, who receive the Holy Spirit just as the apostle had, were not saved. And that'd be a problem because you'd have to say, yeah, they were not saved. They weren't They weren't uh, true believers. They were not really justified before God, even though they had faith in God and their Holy Spirit was working in them and through them and praising God and all that stuff because you teach water baptism is necessary for salvation, even though no verse says that. And you have to read into the text in order to make it uh, fit your theological um, assumptions and so uh he said they weren't being saved part of being baptized don't know my, don't know what my note means there he said that i need to produce scripture that says all who speak in tongues are brought into the church and are saved no i don't need to produce scripture like that uh there's no necessity to to, to, to produce a verse that you admitted doesn't even exist um you see i'm just using your logic with you you said that i need to do certain things with the word of god well okay look the debate is does the Bible teach that water baptism is necessary for salvation? Your job, uh, if you want to be in the debate, your job is to go to the scriptures and show necessity, try to argue from the, the, the scriptures themselves. Church fathers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, 
that your your church is irrelevant to the debate topic. This is what you agreed to. You need to stick with the debate. And you need to enter into the debate and deal with it biblically. So it's not about the charismatic gifts either. Uh, though I love to debate the charismatic gifts. I'm a continuationist. But it's about water baptism and its necessity for salvation. As far as Caiaphas goes, uh, John 11, uh, you related him that issue of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. No, uh, Caiaphas was moved by the power of God to prophesy, but it doesn't mean he had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so you misapplied that. You tried to relate them together to say, well, Caiaphas did it just like the people in Acts 10, 44 through 48. And the fact that you went to Caiaphas and misapplied Caiaphas tells me this is a problematic area of scripture for you, Acts 10, 44 through 48. You're going to have to tell us that uh, those who are speaking in tongues, exalting God, who had already received the Holy Spirit, just as the apostle Peter had, hey, they weren't Christians. They weren't, they weren't saved. Got to get that water dunked. You know, then, then they could be saved. And you haven't found any scriptures that say that's, a, that's the reality. So uh, there you go. You're up. Okay, well, you pointed to Romans 5 as justification for saying that believers are in the church. But again, you said exactly what I said that uh, Protestants do. Uh, nowhere in uh, Romans 5 does it say only believing makes one saved or in the church. Also, uh, you just admitted that uh, there's nowhere in the Bible that you can point to where it says somebody speaking in tongues is saved or in the church. And also, uh, you just said that it was by the power of God that Caiaphas was able to do that. Well, the Holy Spirit is God. And with regards to Acts 10:44 through 48, uh, well, again, you're trying to make the case that they were saved, but you're admitting that nowhere in the text itself does it say they're saved. So we have to go by what the Bible says. Also, uh, I answered the first question as to what the, quote, the gift of the Holy Spirit, unquote, in Acts 10:44 through 47 meant, which again only refers to them receiving the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as talking in tongues, not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which occurs through water baptism. It's also, it also did not say their sins are remitted or that they were saved. Now, to answer the second question, which is why, why did they receive those charismatic gifts? We see that the reason Cornelius and those with him received those, uh, those gifts of the Holy Spirit was because it was a sign to the Jews that had traveled along with St. Peter. Early in that very same chapter, we see that God sent a vision to St. Peter, and we see in verse 28 that St. Peter connected this vision to the Gentiles, whereby St. Peter now recognized that it's acceptable by God that even the Gentiles should be brought into the church. The Jews, however, that traveled along with St. Peter had not seen this vision. Instead, God revealed to those Jews that the Gentiles should be welcomed into the Lord's church by bestowing the gifts of the Holy Spirit upon those Gentiles. This is why we see verse 45 saying, quote, All the circumcised Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, unquote. So it was a sign to the Jews that were there, along with St. Peter's retelling of those events to the Jews in Acts 11, whereby the Jews came to accept the concept of Gentiles being allowed into the church. In fact, the implication of Acts 11.17 is that God would have been hindered in giving salvation if they were denied baptism. So if anything, both Acts 10, chapter 10 and 11 actually proves the necessity of water baptism in order to enter the church. Notice Cornelius in the beginning of the chapter had a miraculous vision of an angel that 
and that angel instructed him to have men go and retrieve Peter. For what purpose, you may ask? Well, we see at the very end of the chapter that it was for the purpose of water baptizing those Gentiles into the church, which Scripture calls the body of Christ. Notice that God sent an angel in both cases. In this case, to have Peter baptize Cornelius, and in Acts chapter 8, to have Philip baptize the Ethiopian eunuch. In fact, Matt Slick on his own radio show this past Monday was speaking to a caller about sprinkling versus immersion. Even though verses 32 and 33 reveal the eunuch was reading Isaiah 53 through 7, 7 through 8, Matt himself conceded to the fact that the Ethiopian eunuch had most likely also just finished reading through Isaiah 52 as well, which near the end of that chapter, it begins the prophecy of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, and continues on through chapter uh, 53. The very last verse in chapter 52 prophesied the new covenant baptism by saying, quote, He, the Lord, will sprinkle many nations, unquote. In his conversation with that caller, Maslick conceded that this new covenant baptism is indeed water baptism because he himself was making the argument that it can be done by either immersion, pouring, or sprinkling of water. Also, notice that God sent an angel in Acts 8 so as to set the events in motion, which ultimately leads the eunuch to get water baptized. Plus, Philip heard the eunuch reading about the prophecy of the Messiah, which included baptism as part of that prophecy. Is this just a culmination of coincidences all occurring at once? Of course not. All of these occurrences were guided by the hand of God, which shows us the importance that God places on us being water baptized into his new covenant which proves that baptism is not just a symbolic act. This is exactly what happened in the case of Cornelius and those gathered with him. An angel in that situation as well set forth certain events to occur, whereby the end result was Cornelius and other Gentiles being accepted and brought into the church through water baptism, which is why we see Peter commanding them in the very last verse to be water baptized. This is the same baptism which 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says brings us into the body of Christ which scripture calls the church. This is the same baptism St. Peter says, quote, saves you, unquote, in 1 Peter 3.21. It's the same baptism which the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD tells us within its Nicene Creed, quote, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, unquote. It's the same baptism St. Peter says removes sins in Acts 2.38. It's the same new covenant baptism Jesus instituted in 20, uh, Matthew 28, 9, 19 through 20, which Jesus himself says makes one into a disciple. And it's the same baptism St. Paul received in Acts twenty two sixteen, which is said to have washed away his sins. By the way, 1 Corinthians six eleven uses the same verb for wash, which is used in Acts twenty two sixteen, which proves that St. Paul's, uh, Paul's sins were actually washed away at the moment Irenaeus water baptized Paul. The Greek word in both verses means an actual cleansing of sins, not just the covering of sins, as many Protestants believe. And that concludes my statement, if you'd like to go ahead. Oh, and somebody else, I don't know, somebody else just entered, and uh, it's like background noise. Well, they can uh, be muted. Let me respond to what you said. Uh, you misquoted me. It wasn't Romans 5. It was Romans 4, verse 5. Um, the fact that you don't know that is really disturbing. But uh, nowhere does it say, you said, nowhere does it say that only believing um, is what saves you. Well, basically, yeah. Now, not ex exact words, but it does say that um, to the one who does not work but believes. That means belief there is the only thing left. You have works, 
Yeah, belief. You should do a study sometime on how Paul uses works and faith, and he juxtaposes them constantly. But he says in Romans 4, uh, you know, we'll bring up the whole thing, but I'll just sit with verse 5. Well, actually, verse 3, uh, Romans 4, 3, uh, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is before baptism. And he was in the Old Testament covenant, and his faith there was reckoned as uh, as, as being justified. And then he goes on to say two verses later to the one who does not work but believes his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, uh, we have before the uh, new covenant and after the new covenant's instituted, and both are saying the same thing. And yes, that is a good place for showing that faith alone is what saves um, because it's faith in what Christ has done, not what we do. And yes, we do baptism. It's a ceremony. And um, uh, your uh, deathbed conversion thing, of course, rests on whether or not you can prove that water baptism is necessary. You have not done that. This is, uh, you know, it's a difficult thing for you to do. Um, and uh, it's right. And, and to to uh, revisit Acts 10, 44 through 48, you're right. Nowhere in the text of, at Pericope does it say the words they were saved. But we know uh, that uh, saved people uh, in Scripture speak in tongues and they exalt God. And they have the Holy Spirit. And uh, we know that those are characteristics of being saved. Uh, they're not the characteristics of being unbelievers. And now, if you want to say that unbelievers can speak in tongues, show it to me. If you want to say unbelievers uh, truly exalt God, show it to me. If you want to show me how the unbelievers have the gift of the Holy Spirit, show it to me. Now, you, if you're going to do that, I would suggest that you do a word study on the phrase gift of the Holy Spirit. and You'll find out that it doesn't occur with Caiaphas. God's very precise in how he words things. You should study the word, and you'll see it's in reference to believers. And so your Caiaphas reference doesn't work, and your misapplication of it into Acts 10, 44-48 is misapplied as well. Um, and you said the indwelling of the Holy Spirit occurs through baptism. That's what you said. Uh, okay. You have this habit of saying, Matt, where's exactly? Say these words. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you. Where does it say the indwelling of the Holy Spirit occurs through baptism? Show me that in Scripture. It doesn't say that because we already have. They had already received the Holy Spirit before baptism in Acts 10, 44 through 48. Um, <clears throat> so you're saying that uh, the people who uh, in Acts 10 uh, were, were not saved, even though they were exalting God, they were speaking to God, they received the Holy Spirit. They were not forgiven of their sins. That's what you're saying. And you made some, I didn't quite get it. Uh, Acts 10 through 11, you said, proves your point. Uh, no, I disagree with that. Um, and I'm glad you listened to my radio show. That's good. Uh, I hope you continue to do so. The Ethiopian eunuch in Isaiah 52, that's a different topic about the mode of baptism. Um, anyway, uh, I certainly admit that baptism follows salvation. The covenant sign of baptism is a public demonstration of how God saved the person. At the very least, it's a symbol. But I also believe that it's a covenant sign. And the reason I do is because Colossians 2, 11 through 12 talks about baptism, and Paul relates it to circumcision, having been circumcised with a circumcision uh, made without hands, having been buried with him in baptism. And so uh, he relates these. Now, exactly to what extent the relationship occurs, that's another discussion and uh, something I'd like to discuss sometime because I don't know the exact relationship. But I do know this, that that uh, circumcision was a covenant sign. And I affirm that uh, baptism, water baptism, is also a covenant sign. I'm Presbyterian, so I include the infants in that, not for salvation, but as a covenant sign. 
And so circumcision did not save anybody, but it, it guaranteed them certain covenantal rights. And I would carry that over to uh, circumcision, even for infants. Now, that's a, another topic. A lot of Protestants aren't going to agree with me on that, and that's okay. But this is to demonstrate to him, as he says, Protestants believe this and that, that I don't uh, always agree with the majority of what the Protestants say. Uh, and so to, to continue, anyone who rejected the covenant sign rejected the covenant. And so I believe baptism is at the very least a symbol of that covenant sign, the covenant being justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And um, in Acts 22, 16, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So what washes away your sins? Water or calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's something you got to ask. Um, so you went, I went, okay, so now here we go. Now you've talked about having people ask questions. I'm open to that if they want to do that right now and fire questions. Um, are you open to doing that right now? You want to have people ask questions? Are you want to say something else and then I'll respond to it or what? Well, no, at this time, I mean, I'd like for us just to continue a one-on-one -on -one debate, unless you want to pause now and we continue next week. Well, I got other things coming up next week. I think somebody else wants to debate me on something else. So we're still trying to work on something. I kind of forgot what it was, but someone said they wanted a piece of me. Not those exact words. I said, well, let's do it the week after. So we'll see what what happens there. But if you want to continue, uh, great. If you want to ask me some questions, that's okay. I can ask you some questions. or if Because you, you brought it up. You, do people have questions? I'm open to that as well. So if what we is, do the that, thing is, go ahead. Yeah, the thing is I, I kind of like to go ahead and just continue the way we've been doing it. Because the the ways we the way we've done it before, you know, we we get into sort of arguments and we interrupt each other and so forth. And like I said, I don't think that's very edifying to those that's um, listening or viewing. Okay, but that's uh, fine. let's do it for another. How about another fifteen or to the bottom of the hour? How about that? Another twenty minutes, and then we'll open it up to uh, questions. What do you say? That okay, good? that sounds good. Okay. Okay, yeah. so yeah, you said that you believe that baptism is a covenant sign. Uh, well, the fact of the matter is baptism is linked to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And there's numerous verses whereby it actually goes ahead and makes the case that the grace of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is conferred to the person that's getting baptized at the moment of baptism, meaning entering into the new covenant. Now, many Protestants usually cite the thief on the cross as an example against the necessity of water baptism, but it's a false example because the thief on the cross had not gone to heaven that day. It's strange, in fact, that, you know, Protestants don't realize that fact. We Catholics know that. I don't know why Protestants don't. But you see, instead, the thief, also known as St. Dismas, went to the place all the Old Testament saints had gone to, which is called Abraham's bosom. It's always been understood since apostolic times that any place other than heaven is considered hell, even earth itself. He did not descend to hell of the damned but to the place in hell also called Hades or the limbo of the fathers, which is the uh, prison described in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19. It was the waiting place of the just of the Old Testament who could not enter heaven until after the Savior came. So one can say that God saved the Old Testament saints in the sense that they dodged Gehenna, which is the eternal hell also referred to as the lake of fire. However, the Old Testament saints weren't saved in the sense that the gates of heaven was open to them. This is because they needed to wait until Jesus' sacrifice on the cross so that they could receive the forgiving grace under his new covenant. And in that way, they could then enter into heaven. But only after Christ first bodily ascends to heaven himself. 
So one can say that the sins of the Old Testament saints were forgiven due to their repentance, but their sin debt was not forgiven because Jesus had not yet paid the penalty for their sin debt on the cross. Also, even though the grace of Jesus' new covenant went into effect at his death, as we see in Hebrews 9, 15 through 17, that grace was not applied to the thief on the cross at the moment the thief died because he, Jesus did not yet formally institute his new covenant by his word in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Remember that the preceding passage, Hebrews 9, 15 through 17, we learned that this new covenant is like a will, which would only take effect when the one who drew it up has died. However, as we see with any will, what's recorded in the will is not dispensed till a later time, shortly after one's death. Therefore, it's at that moment in, he, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, that Jesus formally instituted his church under his new covenant and made both receiving the faith and receiving baptism binding on all persons, thereby making it necessary that a person must believe and be baptized in order to get into heaven and enter his church. So Jesus was at that moment dispensing the grace from his new covenant by formally instituting what, the, what he effectuated at the moment of his death on the cross, which is his new covenant itself. Again, we see this as how it's done with any will. Now, Protestants like Matt Slick may object and say it doesn't say, quote, baptism saves in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. But instead, it just says it makes one a disciple. Well, my response would be that it does not have to say baptism saves in that passage because it says elsewhere in Scripture that baptism saves. And therefore, the reader must consider reading that particular verse in context with the rest of Scripture, namely 1 Peter 3.21 and Mark 16.16, 16, which again explicitly says baptism saves. So since baptism under the new covenant was instituted after Jesus' resurrection by our Lord himself, by his word, then it was not binding on the thief when the thief died. The thief on the cross was promised by Jesus that he'd be with him in paradise on that day, but Jesus did not go to heaven on that day. Jesus went to Sheol, also known as Hades, which is comprised of an upper and lower level, Abraham's bosom being the upper, and the rest of Sheol being the lower. To further prove the point that the good thief did not go to heaven on that day of uh, Jesus' crucifixion, there is the fact that on Easter Sunday, when Mary Magdalene met with the risen Lord, he told her, quote, Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father in heaven, unquote. Therefore, the, par the paradise Jesus was speaking of obviously was not heaven. The, reasons, the reason Jesus referred to Abraham's bosom as paradise is for two reasons. First, because it is not a place of torment, unlike the lower portion of Sheol, and like the lake of fire, which again is called Gehenna. Secondly, because Jesus, who is God himself, would be there proclaiming the, to the Old Testament saints the mystery of the gospel. Later on, after Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus was ascending bodily into heaven, he would then lead them all into heaven to dwell with him, as we see in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. So you might ask, well, then how did all those Old Testament saints, such as Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and on up to the thief on the cross, eventually end up in heaven if they had not been water baptized under the Lord's new covenant? Well, the error is in the question itself. So it's, it's to assume that prior to entering heaven, they were not water baptized. We see after Jesus' resurrection that these Old Testament saints were seen rising out of their graves and walking amongst the people in Matthew 27, 51 through 53. So because of this, there would have been plenty of opportunity for them to receive water baptism under the new covenant prior to being taken into heaven by Jesus on the day Jesus ascended bodily into heaven. Now, 
if Matt Slick or any other Protestant objects to this by saying the Bible doesn't say the Old Testament saints received baptism after they had risen out of their graves, then my response would be that the Bible doesn't say that it doesn't list by name all those who, at Pentecost that received baptism either, nor does the Bible have to explicitly do so. Instead, the Bible would simply need to reveal to us that baptism under the new covenant forgives sins, as we see in Acts 2.38, that it saves, as we see in 1 Peter 3.21, that it washes away sins, as we see in Acts 22.16, and that without it, one cannot enter into heaven, as we see in John 3.5. Therefore, we know based on those scriptures, along with others, the Old Testament saints would have had to receive the waters of baptism in order to be taken into heaven by Jesus. Plus, based on those same scriptures, Anyone living after the new covenant was instituted would also need to receive water baptism in order to enter into heaven. Those very same scriptures refute the idea that one can receive salvation by only believing alone. And that concludes my statement. If you'd like to go ahead. Yes, I would. Um, you were, it's good. You're quoting more scriptures. That's good. Oh, man. Hold on a sec. Oh, where's my mouse go? Sorry, I left my speech recognition program on. You may see me speaking. Uh, I turn myself off and then I, I do my speech program and repeat what you say uh, for notes. Okay. So uh, just getting down some notes here and some context. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. He said, you said that baptism is linked to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and that uh, grace is given when you're baptized. <clears throat> Uh, doesn't say that in scripture, that grace is given when you're baptized. That's just a Catholic doctrine you're reading into the text. Uh, he wrote the thief of the cross on the cross. Uh, you're right. He didn't go. I agree with you. He didn't go to heaven that day until probably after uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 10, 11, and 12 talks about having probably uh, after he had gone and made proclamation out of first Peter 3, 18 and 19. <clears throat> then he uh, took them up into uh, to heaven. So that's, there's, there's debate on that, but nevertheless, that's, is irrelevant to this discussion because the issue of the thief on the cross is whether or not he was forgiven without being baptized. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in, in paradise. And so, uh, which, you know, Abraham's bosom, that's fine. And you got to tell me what the name of that thief was by tradition. Cause I know that, uh, I think it'd be fun to just to know that name, even if by tradition. <clears throat> and so, uh, was he forgiven? Was the thief forgiven? Well, uh, I'm glad you, you quoted uh, or you referenced uh, Hebrews 9, 15 through 16. Also, you got to go to Hebrews 8, 13. But the issue is that the new covenant is ratified at the death of Christ. And that's what those verses talk about. So under the new covenant, baptism is necessary for salvation, you would have to say. And you kind of hinted at that a little bit with the Old Testament saints, which I'll get to. It's a problem for you. But um, <clears throat> so uh, he had not been baptized and he died. And so he, uh, you know, he went, would be with Christ. So that has to mean that he was saved, yet he was not uh, baptized because uh, Christ died before the thief died. And so the new covenant was in effect. Uh, that's, a, that's a problem. Limbo. Uh, okay. Uh, whatever. Um, so now that the resurrected people, I, I'm not sure I understood you properly. So I may misrepresent you here, not intentionally. If, if I do, it's, I apologize. But I'm trying to understand what you say. You do speak quickly. But I'm trying to put my notes in order. Uh, you said something about the 500 were, were, that were resurrected were now baptized. Um, nothing in Scripture says that. That's just uh, reading into the text. Uh, and again, you're not going with what just the Scripture says. 
uh, and reading it in its context and things like that. Um, but were there only 500 saints in the Old Testament covenant time? Obviously, there's a lot more than just 500. So if just those 500 were baptized, what about the, all the others uh, who were not resurrected? Uh, you know, the thousands upon thousands of faithful Jews uh, from the thousands of years earlier, uh, more than 500. So did they go to heaven without being baptized? If the resurrection is a necessity, the resurrection is a necessity. If you're saying something like that, and then the issue of baptism is concomitant with that, then that would be a, an inconsistency on your part. But I probably misunderstood you, so I, oh, maybe I did. Uh, so was the thief on the, on the cross forgiven when Jesus says, you'll be with me in, in paradise? Was, was Jesus saying, you're, you're not forgiven right now, but you will be? And if so, show me that in Scripture. Uh, and so I already talked about the thief ratification. Um, the grace was not applied to the thief on the cross because the new covenant had not yet been instituted by the word. Uh, that's what you said. You referenced Matthew 28, 19 through uh, 21, I think, or 20, about, you know, be baptized, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the, that great commission doesn't talk about it being an act of salvation or what saves them. You use that, took it out of context. That's not what it says. Uh, and you said grace, grace wasn't applied to them uh, as if grace is a substance, which you use the word infused, which is another problem. And I know Catholic soteriology on that doctrine. But nevertheless, uh, you said that grace was not applied to the thief on the cross because uh, the new covenant had not yet been instituted by the word. Well, that's wrong. The, it, the new covenant is instituted by the death. Rome, uh, Hebrews 9, 15 through 16. That's what it says. It does not say by that word out of Matthew 28. So you made a mistake there. <clears throat> and that disproves your, your point on that. He said, uh, covenants will be like a will, and a will is not dispensed until a person's death. Yeah, exactly what Hebrews 9, 15 through 16 was referring to. I would agree that after the death of Christ, forgiveness was, dis was dispensed to that thief uh, who then died after Christ did. Uh, even in 1 Peter 3, 21, it doesn't even say that baptism is necessary. Just one of my notes. I forgot what the context was. You go into Mark 16, 16. Uh, which does not explicitly say that baptism saves. What it does say is he who believed and is baptized shall be saved, but he who disbelieves shall be condemned. It doesn't say, but if you're not baptized, uh, you won't be saved. That's what it doesn't say that. It says if you don't uh, believe, the issue is on belief, because it is true that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's true. It's also true that he who believes and goes to church will be saved. It's also true that he who believes and endures to the end will be saved. But you see, you've got to understand that belief is a thing of justification. We go to Romans 3.28, Romans 4.5. We can go to uh, Acts, uh, Galatians 2.16 to uh, 21. We go to several verses. We can talk about that issue. You went back to Acts 22.16. We already addressed that. And I'll end. I'm going to go quickly. I'm not trying to hog time. We went to Acts, or excuse me, John 3.5. And you said John 3, 5 uh, necessitates uh, the idea that you can't go to heaven without being baptized. In Acts, uh, Acts. In, uh, John 3, 5, uh, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, my position uh, is that uh, what the water there is, is the water of the womb. And I will say that I'm going to give uh, defend it, but I'm going to say that the majority of the Protestants don't hold to that position. Nevertheless, um, I don't go with what a majority says or a minority says. I go with what I think the scripture says. Verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. Can he? And be born? Can he? Womb. And uh, 
Then Jesus says, well, that was born of water, and he must be born of water and the spirit. Then, he's, then Jesus says, that was just born of the flesh is flesh, that was just born of the spirit is spirit. It certainly looks like the case to me is he's saying there's a birth that's natural and a birth that's spiritual. Birth of the water and a birth of the spirit. That's what I see it as being. You don't have to agree, but that's my position. And so uh, it's not because I'm recalcitrant, but it's because I read that and I go, that's what it looks like to me. That's what it looks like to me. So that's my position. And uh, so that's not that doesn't convince me at all. It may convince others your position, uh, particularly Catholics who will only believe what the Roman Catholic Church tells them to believe about that verse. But that's my position out of that contextually. All right. Uh, you know what? It's uh, 725. We won't be able to finish unless you want to do one minute each. You want to do How about this? How about this? Why don't you want to do a two minute conclusion? I'll do a two-minute conclusion, and then um, we'll take open up to questions to anybody. It's going to suggest that. Yeah. Sound good? Well, I tell you what. Why don't we just why don't we just postpone it, and if not next week, some other time. Doesn't make any. Sometime we got the whole year, you know. So let's just uh, postpone it, and we'll continue another time. We're right here. Well, I mean, if you want to continue with the debate, I'm I'm happy with that. If you want to continue. I just thought others might want to have questions uh, because that's generally how it works. And well, see, that's fine. Let's do that then. Let's take questions then. And, and, we'll, and what we'll do is, would you agree we could postpone the debate and continue another time? Uh, well, uh, we could have another debate. We'll take, want, yeah, we'll, but, yeah uh, we'll take questions now and then we'll, we'll postpone the debate for another time. Unless you it. want to continue so, the debate, I'm happy to continue it. Well, you want to go for another 10 minutes then? I, I, I want to ask questions. I think it's fair. In all the debates I've been, people get to ask questions. Well, this, that's what I'm saying. We could go ahead and let them ask questions, and then uh, we'll postpone the debate between you and I for another time, and we'll let people ask questions now. Are you okay with that? What do you mean postpone? I mean, yeah, was, uh, you're having the debate right now, and you guys have gone back and forth now for you know over an hour now. Hour and a half. Well, I messed up. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is the debate right here. I don't know why you want to postpone. <laughs> I don't want to postpone anything. I'd like to continue the debate between Maslick and continue. myself. Go ahead. Let's continue. Go ahead. Continue. That's what you want. Okay. All right. Writing. Okay. All right. So, um, all right. So, yeah. Well, with regards to the 500, uh, I don't know. I mean, Jesus went to Abraham's bosom. How do we know he didn't baptize them there? Of course, you'll say, well, the Bible doesn't say that. Well, it doesn't have to. Um, and also, Hebrews 9, uh, 15 through 17 never says that it was instituted. It, it was effectuated. I don't disagree. It was effectuated at the moment Jesus died, but Jesus instituted it in Matthew 28, 19 through 20 by his word. Um, and, uh, you know, not only that, but, you know, you and some other Protestants I've, I've heard before, you falsely claim that the Apostle Paul did not believe in baptismal regeneration because he was thankful that he baptized only the households of Crispus and Gaius in 1 Corinthians 1.14. You and other Protestants will also claim that if Paul believed and taught that baptism was absolutely essential to the new birth, his failure to baptize more than two people in Corinth is an odd thing to boast about. You know, Protestants will also cite Paul's declaration that, quote, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, unquote, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, as evidence that baptism is not connected to the gospel. But what these Protestants 
critics fail to appreciate, however, is the fact that in the preceding verses, Paul lamented about dissension in the church caused by neophytes inappropriately pledging their loyalty to the person who baptized them. As we see in 1 Corinthians 10 through 14, Paul was thankful that he did not have many believers pledging themselves to him in this way because he only baptized a few. Paul is not denying how very important baptism is. Rather, he is denying that baptism bonds the candidate to the person performing it. Likewise, Paul's report that, quote, Christ did not send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel, unquote, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, does not prove that the act of baptism is, has absolutely no connection to the gospel that Paul preached. As an example, Jesus preached the necessity of baptism in John 3.5, and he oversaw many baptisms without personally baptizing anyone, as we see in John 4.2. Therefore, St. Paul's decision personally to take part in only a few baptisms, does not disconnect baptism from the gospel any more than the decision to only personally disciple a few people would disconnect discipleship from the gospel, as seen in Matthew 20, 19, 28, 19. Besides, Protestants making false claims about St. Paul, some of them make the false claim that there is more than one new covenant baptism. And they do this as an attempt to deny that water baptism is the one true baptism under the new covenant. They'll falsely make the claim that it's not water baptism that is being mentioned in a particular verse, but some spirit baptism instead. Some of them will use what Jesus said in, uh, about the woman at the well, not realizing that Jesus was only speaking metaphorically. Some examples whereby they falsely claim it's not speaking of water baptism is with Titus 3.5 and Galatians 3.27. They'll also confuse the terms, quote, baptism of the Holy Spirit, unquote, and, quote, baptism of fire, unquote, as if those are actual new covenant baptisms, which they are not. Again, they are metaphoric words, the first referring to charismatic gifts and spiritual guidance received from the Holy Spirit, as seen in Acts 1.8, Galatians 5.22 through 23, Acts 10.44 through 46, Acts 19, 6, uh, verse 16, Acts 8.14 through 7. The second, fire which refers to suffering, trials, and martyrdom in the name of Christ, seen in 1 Peter 1, 7, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, Mark 10, 38 and 39, Hebrews 12, 6 and 12, 11, Matthew 20, 22 through 23, and finally Luke 12, 50. If any Protestant attempts to claim there's more than one baptism under the new covenant, then that would be a denial of Ephesians 4, 5, a denial of the Nicene Creed, and a denial of what the church has taught for 2,000 years. They explicitly tell, tell us that there's only one baptism. Ephesians says this in the context of there being one God. Therefore, to say there is more than one baptism under the new covenant is like saying there is more than one God, or that our Lord didn't just bring only the Christian faith, but also brought other non-Christian faiths that are salvific. Just the same, to falsely suggest there is one new covenant baptism that saves and other baptisms under the new covenant that do not is the same as saying there is one God, there is one God the Father that saves, but two other gods, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that do not. Now, I could understand perhaps a Mormon or Jehovah Witness holding such a false position with regards to there being more than one new covenant baptism. However, I can't understand how other Protestants to whom claim to be Trinitarians can hold that position based on what Ephesians 4, 5 says. By claiming there's more than one baptism under the new covenant, 
then the Trinitarians are simply giving ammunition to persons to whom reject the Holy Trinity. A non-Trinitarian can then use Ephesians 4-5 against the Protestant Trinitarian based on that own Protestant Trinitarian's denial of what Ephesians 4-5 clearly says. If you want to go ahead and respond. All right. Um, <clears throat> so you said, how do we know Jesus did not baptize people in paradise? Uh, well, how do we know Jesus didn't go to Jupiter and uh, talk to some uh, Jupiterians there? Bible doesn't say it, so it's possible. Uh, that kind of, of logic is problematic. If you're going to make a case for the topic at hand, which is, uh, does the Bible teach that water baptism is necessary for salvation? You need to go with what the Bible actually says, not with what it does not say, and then say, well, it doesn't say they weren't baptized, so therefore we can say that they were, or anything like that. That's that's not a good argumentation procedure. You need to go with what it actually says. And you went to Matthew 28, 19, 20, you know, baptized name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and you call this the ratification of the new covenant. And that in that baptism is the dispensing of grace. None of that is in Scripture. You haven't shown that to be the case in Scripture. You've not done that. You've asserted it, but assertions don't make something true. Any more than asserting that people were baptized in paradise by Christ doesn't make it so. You've got to show Scripture. Uh, either show us from the inspired Word of God, what God actually decided to have written down through his apostles and prophets. And I want to see what it, what it says. And remember, the debate is on, does the Bible teach it? Not church fathers, not what your church, not my church, not uh, councils. Does the Bible? And so for you to continue to go off to off topic and off track is just a waste of our time in, in relationship to what the debate is supposed to be about. Hebrews 9, 15 through 16, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. And uh, this death of the covenant maker is where the new covenant, as is spoken about here, is instituted. And so that's where we see it instituted, not in the Great Commission. Um, because it's talking about the covenant right there specifically and then Christ's death in relationship to it. That's why we know that that's, that's what it's talking about. That doesn't occur in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which you have several times misappropriated. Um, so let me see if I can get my notes here because I thought it was really interesting. Uh, you, made it, you, you brought up, I didn't bring it up, out of 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, that uh, Paul did not want to baptize people because they might follow him, you know, and that Paul came to preach the gospel, not to baptize. Well. You brought it up, but if the gospel includes baptism, then why would he say, uh, in the gospels what saves, for Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, 1 through 5, if, if that gospel, the euangelia, the good news, necessitates baptism, then why would he say, I came to, not to preach the gospel, which baptism is a part of, right? I didn't come to, excuse me, I didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which is, includes baptism. I didn't come to do that, but I came to preach about doing that or not doing it. But I'm doing it, but I'm not going to tell you to do that. It wouldn't make any sense. Uh, and what you would be saying is that the the heresy of the, the individuals who, and you, you're calling it wrong, 
you said it was wrong. It was really interesting because you were saying that um, that you know the people were following Paul. I'm a Paul. I'm of Apollos, and so they were giving reverence and honor to someone other than Jesus, which I find to be most interesting because in my notes there I have Mary, the Pope, or any particular saint written in there. You know, like loyal to people and giving homage to people like Paul. And Paul didn't want that to happen. Mary, Pope. Uh, any particular saint you might want to put in there as well. Anyway, so what you're, what's really interesting is that you're saying that he disobeyed the call of God, according to your logic, that baptism is part of that procedure and part of that system of, of saving people. And so he stopped baptizing them because of what they did. So Paul then succumbed to the heresies from your position of people and then violated his commission to preach the gospel, which you say commit, includes baptism. But Paul said, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel. So you have a problem here. Your, your own uh, words just, uh, they, 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 they just hung you. Um, as you would have Paul disobey the command of Christ for the sake of people, uh, things like that. Um, <clears throat> and you went to John 3, 5. You didn't address my, my analysis of John 3, 5 in its context. You just assume that John taught that water baptism is necessary. You know, you have to be born again, but born of water and the spirit. I gave you the context, and you didn't address or refute that, so it doesn't really do much. Uh, you mentioned Titus 3, 5 really fast. I don't remember the context was. Galatians 3, 27, I've already dealt with, and the tutor and the doulos, the slave, and, and you know what that means. Um, <clears throat> and I, I will say hey, congratulations on the verbal carpet bombing that you uh, you underwent there uh, with scripture just threw out a bunch of stuff i mean i couldn't even write them down and it was really good i like that except that quoting a bunch of verses at rapid succession for several seconds doesn't prove anything it just other than you can read uh, a list of scriptures i think you're reading it and if you weren't you memorize praise god but either way the point's made uh if you want to really discuss uh, and debate this you need to get down to individual scriptures and look at what they actually say not a barrage of scriptures um he said the church taught the same thing for a thousand years. Who gives a flying rip what the church uh, taught for 2,000 years? Excuse me. That's not what the debate's about. And by the way, that's not true, what you said. But that's not what the debate's about. You need to stick with what the Bible says, not with what you think the church says. It doesn't matter. And you misrepresented the historical facts anyway. Um, I wasn't discussing anything about uh, more than one new covenant baptism. I didn't bring it up. You keep bringing up things I don't argue and I don't affirm. Uh, and you're not apparently dealing with the issue, uh, topic at hand, which is, is water baptism necessary for salvation? And you got to show that it's necess necessary, that you cannot be saved without it. Acts 10, 44 through 48 has proven to be a real problem with you. We haven't even gone into other verses, uh, which be all, also be problematic, but that's maybe for another time. I've not promoted justification by faith on Christ alone because that's the, not the topic of the debate. I've simply responded to your assertions about uh, your claim that water baptism is necessary, but you've not made the case that it's necessary. Because the title, uh, the debate topic is, is water baptism necessary for salvation? You have to establish that it is necessary. You've not done it. You've taken verses out of context. You've uh, only read parts of verses in order to support your position. You've failed to deal with the logic of some of your positions. I deal with the issue of Paul disobeying God in order to not baptize people. You're, you're, uh, your, your logic and your problems are problematic. Anyway, uh, your turn. Let's, let's just go tell for another 10 minutes, okay? Give people at least 10 minutes to ask questions, and then we're done, all right? Let's just do that because that's quite a long time, hour and a half at the very least. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, well, what you said about Paul completely ignores everything I've said about Paul. 
the context of what I said. And also you said that there wasn't any grace with regards to Matthew uh, 28, 19. Well, obviously becoming a, being made a disciple, that's by the grace of God. It's impossible to be made a disciple unless it's through the grace of God. Not to mention it's the same baptism that's spoken of throughout the scriptures, whereby it directly connects baptism to Jesus' uh, sacrifice on the cross, whereby we receive the grace of remission of sins. Now, we Catholics, uh, the, the fact that you don't believe any grace is associated with baptism, water baptism, isn't surprising. Uh, but we Catholics, and that's because you don't believe in, you know, you believe it's symbolic. But we, we Catholics, we don't disagree with you. We Catholics agree that there definitely is symbolism in baptism. But the Protestant view of baptism being only symbolic simply isn't found in Scripture. There aren't any verses that speak of baptism as merely symbolic. And there are several that teach the exact opposite. For example, the Old Testament is replete with prefigurements of the Holy Spirit's role in saving us in baptism. For example, the Spirit hovering over the waters at the dawn of the world in Genesis 1-2. Noah's Ark, in which salvation of the, on the ark came through water, as 1 Peter 3 reminds us, and in which a dove crosses the water to show that the flood is over in Genesis 8-11. The parting of the Red Sea, in which salvation once again came from passing through water, in which St. Paul would later call a kind of baptism in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. The Mosaic Law, which used ritual washing as a way of signifying cleansing from sins. Naaman's healing in 2 Kings 5, in which a skeptical leper is healed by submerging himself in the waters, yet he initially objected at the seemingly foolishness of a miraculous cleansing through the waters. And the New Testament, as we'll see, has several passages explicitly describing baptism in the way that the Catholic Church claims, not the way Protestants claim. Let's compare the Protestants' claims with, about baptism with what the Bible teaches. For example, question one, is baptism necessary for salvation? Again, a small number of Protestants believe baptism symbolizes that a person has been saved, but is not a means of salvation. However, Scripture explicitly tells us that baptism saves, as we see in 1 Peter 3.21. Therefore, Scripture itself refutes the Protestant position and instead supports the Catholic position. Question 2. What did St. Peter say about baptism in his Pentecost sermon? In his sermon at Pentecost, Protestants claim that Peter urged those who had repented and believed in Christ to be baptized, not that baptism was necessary for salvation, but as a testimony that they had been saved. However, the truth is that nowhere in Peter's Pentecost sermon does it say anything about baptism being a, quote, testimony, unquote, or that his listeners, quote, had been saved, unquote, prior to being baptized. Instead, he tells them to get baptized for the forgiveness of their sins in Acts 2.38, and he makes it clear in verse 2.40 that by doing so, they're saving themselves. Question number three, does baptism wash away sins? As I mentioned before, Protestants attempt to use the thief on the cross. Luke 23 through uh, 39 th uh, through 43, or they'll claim those gathered in Cornelius' house, Acts 10, 24 through 48, all experienced salvation without the necessity of baptism. However, the truth is that the Bible doesn't make that claim. As an example, we see that St. Paul doesn't claim that his sins were washed away on the road to Damascus, even though he became a believer in Christ while on that road. Rather, as his own conversion story attests, it's through baptism that his sins got washed away, as we see in Acts 22.16. Now, Matt Slick attempted to claim, falsely claim, uh, that somehow the quote, calling on Jesus' name in verse 22.16, by which Paul 
through his belief alone washed away his sins. But Matt's claim is completely falls apart when you read what occurred to St. Paul prior to him being baptized. This is because we see in Acts 9-11 that St. Paul had already become a believer and is already praying to Jesus. Also in Acts 22-10-11, we see it saying that by faith, quote, faith, unquote, St. Paul was awaiting to be told what his assignment was to be. And we also see him calling on the name of the Lord as well. So all of that occurs before Acts 22.16. It occurs before he got baptized. Yet, his sins were not forgiven until he got baptized. In Greek, the passage in Acts 22.16 literally records Aeneas saying, quote, Be baptized and wash away the sins of you, unquote. The phrase, quote, having called on the name of the Lord, unquote, is a qualifier added to the paired actions of baptism and washing away sins. Therefore, all of this evidence, when taken together, completely refutes the claim Matt attempts to make, which is that St. Paul's sins were washed away by only believing and by calling on Jesus' name in Acts 22.16. By the way, the Greek word for wash in the verse is apoluo, which again refers to an actual cleansing of sins not just the covering of sins. It uses that same verb in 1 Corinthians 6.11, which it says, quote, at the same time they were washed, they were sanctified, and they were justified, unquote. Therefore, connecting water baptism to both sanctification and justification. This is because at the moment of baptism, one is regenerated, sanctified, and justified all at once. That concludes my statement. There's a problem with you quoting 50 verses uh, at a time and uh, at rapid fire because I'm not able to respond to each and every thing. And that's a, that's a problem. It's one of the things I don't like doing with people is quote 15 verses. And I like to stop and look at each one in context to see if it's saying what you say it says. And the fact that you do that and that you continue to misquote verses, Acts 22, 16, 1 Peter 3, 21, <clears throat> you stop, as you did in Acts 22, 16, with, uh, you know, uh, and you even went into the Greek, get up and be baptized, wash away your sins. But you don't read the rest of it, calling on his name. I don't even know if you've ever done a study on what calling on his name means in the Old Testament, because it's an Old Testament phrase. It has to do with worship, adoration, the seeking of forgiveness, and the whole bit. It's a specific phrase. Call upon the name of the Lord is another specific phrase, and it's used this way. So he's alluding to the Old Testament necessity here of calling upon God. And this is who they would call upon in the Old Testament to be saved. And so, you know, Luke is, is talking about this. You should, you should examine that in the context. Could be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. In the process of calling on his name, that's how your sins are forgiven. Not being dunked in water or having water poured upon you. Water does not do that. The blood of Christ is what washes us cleanse, clean. The blood of Christ is what cleanses us of our sins, not water. Water, baptism, is a covenant sign. We went over this. Uh, let me go back to my notes here. You misrepresent uh, what I say and what the scripture says many times. Uh, and this is one of the problems of doing this like this is that I can't stop you and say, that's not what I said. But you continue on to build a case on something I didn't say. Uh, I didn't say that there was no grace uh, in regard to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I didn't say that. You said, Matt said there's no grace, nothing, any grace with it. I didn't say that. And so you need to not as, tell me what I have said or not said. And listen to what I actually do say. Um, what I have said is that Matthew 28, 18 uh, following does not say that grace is administered by baptism. That's what I said. I didn't say there was no grace associated 
with baptism. And we haven't defined what grace is, and that's a whole other topic. Um, and so, uh, you know, you went on and you talked about Protestants' position that baptism is only symbolic. Well, I already addressed that earlier and say, I don't hold to it only being symbolic. I think it's symbolic and, at the very least, a covenant sign. And so I would think that if you're going to debate me, that you might want to address what I say. And instead of going to all other people, okay, I don't agree with a lot of the, what the Protestants say. And that's okay in that I hold it to a covenant sign and, and I affirm infant baptism, but not for salvation because I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a covenant. Uh, I, I call myself a consistent covenantalist. But that's another topic. Um, and I did not say it's only symbolic, as you were implying. So you're misrepresenting me. And parting of the Red Sea, passing through the water, uh, they weren't baptized. The water had to be moved away from them to get through, just like uh, Peter talks about uh, the waters destroyed um, people in uh, Noah's time. They didn't touch the water. Water didn't touch them. Uh, in Second Kings 5, a leper was cleansed. You know what? I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with the context. I can't comment on it, and I didn't have time to do a full exegesis while you're uh, going at 80 miles an hour. Sorry about that. Uh, he said the scripture tells us that baptism saves, and you misquoted First uh, Peter 3.21 again. You only quoted part of it. We already went over that, and you haven't refuted my, um, my assertion or my option that uh, what— <coughs> Excuse me. What Peter was talking about, in corresponding to that, baptism saves you. The that being the ark, and that they entered by faith. And this is why Peter says, "Not uh, the removal of dirt in the flesh, not the issue of the water upon them." I keep saying that whole thing, and you keep ignoring that, and then going into the one little thing. Okay. Well, by not refuting what I say, you're you're not refuting it. So it doesn't. Your case isn't made. It's not made. Uh, I didn't say that Peter said and asked to. That baptism was a testimony. I forgot what note what that was about. I can't comment. Uh, you did bring up Act 238. Um, I would ask you if it's a formula for salvation. We can go over that. Um, and no, it's not because faith is not the, the word faith is not in there. Um, uh, if it's a formula, then faith needs to be in there. And they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit after baptism in Act 238, but before baptism in Acts 1044 through 48. So that's a whole other discussion we're discussing. A discussion worth discussing. And uh, question, he said, uh, baptism just washed away sins. He went to Acts 22, 16, and uh, we already, already addressed that already several times. Teeth on the cross was not baptized. My notes, you went so fast, it's hard for me to keep up with you. I'm just responding to all you said. That's all I'm doing. Uh, having made my case in the direction, I'm just responding to what you said. You've not made your case. You just asserted a bunch of things right into the text, taking verses out of context, and uh, rapid-fired a bunch of verses, which doesn't prove anything. Uh, the thief on the cross was not baptized, and yet uh, Christ uh, said he'd be with him. And that means in order to have that happen, he has to be saved in order for that to happen. Otherwise, he couldn't be. And um, then to say, as you did earlier, well, maybe Christ baptized him in, in paradise. <sighs> uh, and they were calling upon the name of the Lord, which unbelievers don't do. And by uh, scriptural revelation, they cannot do. First uh, Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot receive the things of God for their foolishness to him. Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12 uh, talks about the uh, the Gentiles who, and the unbelievers, uh, basically, who uh, don't seek for God and um, can do no good. And so you should read that because it talks about that. And I can go into a lot more scriptures about that. And the unbelievers being slaves of sin, Romans 6, 14 through 20. Oh, it talks about that, them being slaves of sin and dead in their sins, Ephesians 2, 1, 
and by nature children of damnation, which is what Ephesians 2, 3 says. We want to go through all those verses sometime and look at them. <clears throat> but that's just to make the case that unbelievers don't exalt God and aren't speaking in tongues. Uh, they, they're, they're true believers, and the true believers are saved. And you have them do all these things without being saved. It, it doesn't make any sense at all. You quoted the Greek. That's fine. But you stopped at the at the place um, where it became difficult for you. It, I guess it didn't suit your theological presupposition. And First Corinthians six eleven spoke so fast that I had to take notes. I didn't follow what you said, so it's difficult for me to respond. But generically speaking, just because one word is used in different places doesn't mean it has the exact same meaning in every context. I forgot what you were saying about it, but that was my note from what you were saying, and that's committing a fallacy called illegitimate totality transfer. A, uh, a word has many meanings in different contexts. You don't transfer them different places. You have to look at their context. That's what we got to do with each of these verses. And uh, you don't allow that very often to be done. All right, there we go. Um, I'm willing to uh, stay on for a while. I, I'm sure uh, James is too. And we can have people come in and ask questions. Maybe they can do that also in uh, the, uh, the room, either in the participation room. Or what I can do is... Uh, Get the at the link to the actual uh, video and see what people's texts are, and then uh, questions in the text. Maybe we can do that. And how about if we alternate a question for him, question for me, kind of a thing? If you guys have questions, you want you want to try that? How's that sound, James? Does that sound okay? That sounds fine to me. Okay. And uh, James Bush, let's see, is baptism if baptism is a requirement for salvation, then the person given the baptism as a requirement, trust no man. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I thought it might have been a question. Does anybody have a question? I'm reading the uh, the watching where you can type in. But if you want to participate, you can go into uh, apologeticslive.com. Just type one word, apologeticslive.com. It'll take you to CARM, and then um, you can come in the room if you want. How does the Catholic guy explain away oh, Romans 4 or 5? It's not on um, the particular topic, but if he wants to answer it, he can. Romans 4 or 5. You want to, you want to tackle that one? Yeah. Well, Romans 4 or 5, 4 or 5 is going ahead and explaining, differentiating between the faith, receiving the faith, participating in the faith, and doing works. And it's saying you should not do – well, that's really a justification type of uh, – question really we're not talking about justification after initial justification because initial justification is not a work therefore it's not a faith versus work type of issue so you know it doesn't really apply because baptism is not a work i've already demonstrated that baptism is not a work so um and in fact uh, i know we're discontinuing the debate between you and i i could have gotten more into it and shown scriptures whereby it shows that uh Baptism is not a work, but instead it's a gift from God. It's a mercy from God that he does to us. For example, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, you know, you know, Protestants like to throw that out as well. And what they don't understand is that it's directly tied to Titus 3, 5. I mean, it's saying pretty much the exact same thing that Titus 3, 5 is saying. But all the early church fathers believe that Titus 3, 5 was speaking of water baptism. So we have a problem here because if Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is telling us what Titus 3, 5 is saying, then that means Ephesians 8 through, uh, 2, 8 through 9 is speaking about initial justification. It's speaking about what the church has always taught. 
which is that faith is conferred upon the believer at the moment of baptism. So that's what it means when it says grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're receiving the grace right there from God at the moment we're getting baptized. We're receiving the true faith because believing alone, I mean, there's nowhere in the Bible where it says believing alone that somehow you receive justification, sanctification, or any of that by believing alone. And also 1 Peter 3.21, when you look at that and you look at Titus 3.5, they're both speaking about saving. So if Titus 3.5 is speaking about baptism as the early church believed, and three, uh, 1 Peter uh, 3.21 is speaking about baptism, they're both saying that you're saved through baptism. So therefore, if uh, Ephesians 2.8-9 is speaking about what Titus 3.5 is speaking about, then that means that it too is speaking about water baptism. And it's making the case that you're brought into the faith and you're saved through baptism. Okay, let me respond to some of that, not all of it, because there's a lot going on. Um, all the church fathers taught Titus 3.5 meant water baptism. Uh, I haven't done a study on that to verify that, but I have discovered that when Roman Catholics tell me that, that all the church fathers taught such and such, I find that is never to be the case. So, uh, I'll reserve that, that judgment for, for there. Um, <clears throat> besides, I wouldn't go with what the church fathers say anyway, so it's not relevant to the discussion. Um, you Several times you made this, made this mention. You reminded me of this. Uh, you know, It doesn't say in the Bible. You talk about justification. We're kind of bleeding over a little bit, but it does relate because it's baptism necessary for salvation. Justification is part of salvation. And uh, nowhere does it say, you, you said, nowhere does it say that um, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, that kind of a thing. Um, and you said that baptism is a work of God. Well, okay. Um, there is a phrase that says, where Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe on whom you have sent. There's a phrase that tells us what the work of God is. And it's not baptism. It's faith. So I'm going to stick with what the Bible says is the work of God. And baptism is definitely a ceremony. You have not established that water baptism is necessary for salvation. And nowhere it says believing alone gets justification. Yeah, it does. Romans 4, 1 through 5. But we can have another discussion sometime about other things. Okay, who's got another, another uh, question? Anybody got a question? Want to ask me a question and he can respond? Or because whoever gets asked a question, the other person gets to respond. And we should, that's how we do it in normal debates I've been in. What the heck is why my visual so bad um, is that in Q&A, the person asked the question, can answer it, and then the other person can respond and then we go back and forth. Even though they go back and forth, they could respond, respond, respond. We just do the one. I feel like he's been reading someone's commentary. Well, maybe he has. Um, or she adds the scripture, which proves, well, okay. Uh, anyone say X isn't a work? Therefore, it's necessary for salvation. You could, okay. Anybody have any questions? Um. Well, uh, I don't know if this is on. Yeah, you're you're in. Oh, right. okay. I uh, I was I was gonna call. I didn't know about this debate thing until Tuesday, um, and then I found out, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I wasn't gonna call today, um, but I figured I'd listen in. A uh, couple of things. And I'm trying to understand this because I, this was uh, interesting to watch. Um, and so I have a question for each of you, if that's okay. Sure. My question, um, 
my question to you, and I, I'll, I'll address you first. Um, actually, you know, what? I'll address the other guy first because this is, this is interesting. Who's the guy and the other guy? Just okay. Well, you're you're Matt, and okay. I don't. The other guy doesn't have a name, James. so I don't know. I, I, I'll just call him Ralph. I don't know. I, I, I James. Don't know His name's James. 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 Great. Okay. First question for James, um, because there's been mention of tradition, and I'm fascinated by this. And one of the things that you mentioned was this: um, the idea that the Old Testament saints were uh, baptized afterwards. Uh, which church father teaches that? Okay, well, I don't know of any church father that teaches that. Now, maybe there is a church father that does. I don't know. There I haven't isn't. studied that. Well, I don't know. But uh, we do know that John 3, 5 says that unless a man is water baptized, and I'm sure your Orthodox Church believes John 3, 5 is referring to water baptism. Yeah, but so we Jesus believe in an old covenant and a new covenant. Right. So, so Je- Jesus is – okay, well, you, want to, you asked me a question. Just allow me to answer, okay? Well, you threw so me in with you let him answer. Let him answer. Okay. Okay. So the thing is, your own Orthodox Church understands John three five as referring to water baptism, and John and Jesus says right there that unless somebody is water baptized, they cannot enter, enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it's not saying only those after the new covenant or those before. He's making a general statement that unless you're water baptized, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So now I know I don't know what the Orthodox believe. I know the Vatican II sect believes in baptism, desire, and baptism of blood, which are false teachings. The traditional Catholic Church for two thousand years only believed in water baptism. You can go back to the Council of Trent. You can go back to other councils as well. It only believed in one baptism, which is water baptism, the sacrament. So I don't know what Orthodox believe. If you believe in more than one baptism, but maybe you got in. Um, after I was speaking about Ephesians 4, 5, where it's speaking about one baptism, and the Nicene Creed speaks about one baptism. So there's not three baptisms. There's not a baptism of water, baptism of desire, baptism of blood, baptism of Holy Spirit, or baptism of fire. There's only one, which is the water baptism. That's the new covenant baptism, whereby one must be baptized into the new covenant in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, which, again, John 3, 5. Oh, and by the way, I mean, there's plenty of church fathers that... Oh, wait, he he could you asked his question, or going on, you know, it was... He the asked about, well, he asked about early church fathers. There's plenty of church... All the early church I fathers spoke about John question. 3, 5. I asked a specific question. That was my question to you. And your well, answer. all the other church fathers spoke about John 3, 5, and they made it clear that that's speaking about water baptism. So we know that I, Jesus said you must be water baptized to get into I, heaven. So that's, that's what I wasn't I'm talking about. about John 3, 5. I was talking about Matthew 27, 52, the dead coming out of their graves. Hey, guys, 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 look, look. If you guys want to have a debate, uh, you guys can set it up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all that's happening. So okay. uh, you said you had a question for me. Yeah. You got one? Yeah. Okay. Let's, oh, do, yeah let's do another is... 10. Fit. We'll do a quarter after, and then we'll we'll quit. And I need to go check on my wife, and then I'll see about going to the after show afterwards. We can talk there, too. Go ahead. All right. Well, um, basically, I've also been reading the sidebar. And uh, so I'm fascinated by this. The sidebar, Atomic Apologetics, put up this thing, Baptism is a sign and seal of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The startling statement that baptism saves you shows the closeness of the relationship between the sign and the reality it signifies. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up, it's it's on the sidebar. I'm not just reading. It's it's just in the chat, the the Hangouts chat. It's the, la- the last thing that was written. Um, 
but the point is, the reason I'm bringing this up is because what I'm trying to understand is if there is a difference. Um, okay, uh, hi, Sean. Uh, in any case, um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because what I'm trying to understand, like when we're talking about the Ethiopian eunuch, um, we, you know, we, you know, what is there to prevent me from being baptized? Uh, it's not like I like I get the fact that we're talking about the question of where does the grace come from. That's a, an interesting academic question. But my question is, why is it separated to begin with? It's not like I don't think that you know the apostle Philip told the the eunuch, okay, well, you know, he explained the scriptures, and the eunuch was like, well, does that mean I get an award by jumping in the river? I mean, there was a purpose to the baptism, and I'm wondering why that's separated out. If that makes sense. No. Doesn't make any sense to me. In other words, in other words, why is the why is the water of baptism separated from the belief? If that like because I, I'm I tend to say wait I wait tend wait, to wait wait I'm trying to get there okay I'm trying to understand yeah. your question like why this question for me or him no that's for you it, it, it's why because it's an interesting question that I'm I'm curious about as to why we separate the faith from the water itself. I don't don't know what you mean by separate the faith from the water. Well, we keep talking about how the baptism isn't what's saving you; it's the faith that's saving you. Now, I would say that it's obviously your faith and the water saving you, in the same way that when Christ healed someone, he used sand, for example. Now, the sand did not obviously. I, I got heal you. Him. I, I got you. Yeah. So you're trying to understand, or I'm trying to understand you. So you're saying then um, that uh, that the symbol is closely related to the the thing it symbolizes. And They're almost separate. inextricably linked. But why separate them is my question. Um, I don't. Okay. That was it. <laughs> As I said before, I believe that uh, baptism is a covenant sign. And I believe there's certain, certain covenant responsibilities and actions of God in a gracious manner. I don't believe that grace is a substance that's infused that makes you more righteous the more sacraments you participate in. Well, I get really I, confused when people start talking about grace and stuff like that. So I'm not Well, I, I just believe grace is a kindness of God that's an unmerited favor upon us. And that, uh, and I don't have this all worked out, but because well, even within Protestant theology, there are differences of opinion about the nature and extent of the two main sacraments and how they're means of grace and how far that goes and i don't have what all worked out so i just don't but uh it's a good question worth a good a, a good discussion on it could mean this it could mean that advantages disadvantages to different positions on that so and i even okay. have these discussions with my partisan fellows and they don't agree with me on some of these things and then I, maybe that's a but you, I, you might be right though so that anyway um now what i will say is this you know, I do want a PCU. Just kidding. Um, I actually want to. You know, I, I wanted to follow up from last time. Uh, so I, I, you're, you guys are really busy. There's a lot of stuff going on. I don't. I apologize. I don't remember you. Um, uh, Deacon Joseph Sweden. Oh, wow, that's embarrassing, isn't it? Yeah, that's okay. I'm pretty <laughs> unmemorable. Completely no, normal. I think it's well for me. It's normal, <laughs> but um, I'm I, I, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> if you said your name, I'd go, oh, okay, but you just don't sound like you think I remember, because I don't remember the sound. I remember the discussion, so I apologize. But No worries. But, uh, right. Whenever you, you know, I'll, I, guess I was going to try today, but you had kind of something lined up. Sorry yeah. about that, James, but, you know. Right. You, yeah, you guys would be, ought to go at it. It'd be fun. Uh, I, I offered you. <laughs> Let's, okay, anybody else have a question? When you go till a quarter after, and I do need to check on my wife. 
Okay. I did post something on there. It's not really on topic, but um, on the side chat there in the uh, hangout. And I also oh, posted. that's uh, where that was he was reading. I was looking for it in the other room. Sorry. Uh, gotcha. And I also posted on the YouTube uh, chat, too. All right. Mm-hmm. What's your question? <laughs> Baptism is a sign and seal of God's grace in Christ Jesus. No, no, no. no? Go down, go down. Go ahead and read that. Since the two synods of Hippo and Carthage were under the control of what would later become the Orthodox Church, how can the Roman Catholic Church claim they determine the canon? Would not such a claim be more naturally due to the Eastern Orthodox Church? Okay, go ahead. Who, me? Yeah, yeah. no, that, that would be a Roman Catholic guy. But Oh, okay. You're starting to fight. I mean, you know, you're starting to fight between an EO and an RC, you know, but... Um, Okay, well, that's, that, that, that question doesn't uh, really pertain to the debate that we were having. That's completely different topic, so I'm, I'm, you know. Okay. Anybody have a question on the topic at hand? I'm looking through the text, and uh, I don't see anything. And if we don't have any more questions, then, you know, we could just be done because it's after been two hours. And I, I want to apologize again for my clicking the the thing off it was not intentional it was just a dumb mistake and uh sorry about that thanks for being gracious about that too you're, you're patient i appreciate that okay uh i don't see any other questions okay no other questions so i tell you what um uh is uh the after show going to be around john Yes, I can go ahead and get one started. And okay. for the uh, viewers, uh, all you got to do is just do a search for Atomic Apologetics on YouTube and find my channel. And then from there, uh, I'll go ahead and, and post the link to join and also to uh, you can just view the, the show from there. It'll be about probably like an hour long or so. Um, I'll try to get some of the council involved and uh, yeah, we'll have a good old discussion. Well, could you put the link in here, and then I can go join it, and then I can leave this thing that I'm in right now, and then I can go check on my wife, make sure everything's okay with her. Um, in order for me to get a link, I need to actually leave this hangout and then start it. a new oh. one. And then, so what I could do is uh, email it to me. Okay, I can just email it to you. What was that info at? Uh... Yeah, info at Carmelorg is fine, and I'm gonna go. I got to close out and see how my wife's doing because a lot of people right. know that my wife's got some serious medical issues coming up lately well, and I just need to check on her. Before you go, Matt, I just mm-hmm. want to tell you that, um, you know, if, if you'd like to continue this discussion, this debate at a later time, I'd be happy to do so uh, because, uh, you know, the, you had made some claims about Noah's Ark con- uh, connecting it to 1P321, and I'd very much like to delve into that. Well, if you want to discuss a particular verse, we could have a discussion on it. What I would end up doing is is getting a Greek scholar and referring to him on it. I'm not a Greek expert, um, but the antecedent generally is the rule is that the, the closest noun or whatever it is, the topic refers to the antecedent. And this that's not the case in First Peter 3.21. And so it is a debatable issue, but there are scholars who hold to the position I hold to and don't. So what is the real position? And if we're to debate something, I'm not going to debate you uh, on something you don't believe but what you do believe and uh you know so that's my position but uh we can discuss it another time okay sounds great okay 
All right, everybody. Then I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and close this down. And uh, James, thanks for showing up. It was a good conversation. I hope it was edifying for people. And uh, uh, so thank you. And I'm gonna be gone for 10 or 15 minutes or less. Check on my wife. If I don't come back at all, it's because she needs me. But if I do come back, obviously she says it's okay. All she's doing, okay. So God bless everybody, and thanks, and uh, thanks James for participating, and everybody else. And we'll hopefully I'll be on a little bit later. We'll see. God bless. Bye.